is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Kateri Zuni. Tonight in this special episode of Generation Justice, we share a lecture from the UNM Africana Studies Cortez Williams Lecture Series featuring Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez is Henisaro and traditionally adopted Comanche. He is also a University of California President's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, San Roma. He will discuss race, indigeneity, and blackness in the U.S. borderlands of New Mexico. The Cortez Williams Lecture Series is sponsored by the UNM Office of the Provost, Vision for Equity and Inclusion, Men of Color Initiative, and the Albuquerque Chapter of the Lynx. Now, Dr. Natasha Howard of UNM Africana Studies introduces Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez. Hello. So I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Gonzalez, um, whom I met at a conference in Vancouver for Critical Ethnic Studies, and I was very pleased with the discussions we had about race in New Mexico. So Dr. Gonzalez is a Hinisaro and traditionally adopted Comanche from the borderlands of Comancheria and Hinisaro country in northern New Mexico. He earned his PhD in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin in 2017. Dr. Gonzalez successfully completed graduate portfolios in both Mexican-American and Latina, Latino studies and Native American and indigenous studies alongside a thematic emphasis in the US-Mexico border. He also earned his MA in Latin American studies with distinction from the University of New Mexico in 2012 and graduated from the New Mexico State University with a BA in government with honors in 2010. Currently, Dr. Gonzalez is a University of California President's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And in the fall of 2019, he will begin a new position at Colorado College as the 2019-2020 Riley Scholar in Residence in Anthropology and Southwest Studies. So let's give a welcome to Dr. Gonzalez. All right, let's see here. I guess first and foremost, muy buenos días, muy buenas tardes a todos. My name is Gregorio Gonzalez, and um, it is an incredible honor to be back here, uh, to be back home in a way. Uh, I was actually born here in Albuquerque, and uh, you know I got my MA here, and so it's a, it, it's a homecoming in a way, and I think to be able to uh, share these kinds of good words uh, with you all today uh, I'm just I'm, I'm blessed to be able to be here um, and of course I want to thank uh, our, our Pueblo relatives for uh, I think maintaining those secular and sacred structures which continue to uh, govern this place since time immemorial uh, as well as all those native and non-native relatives who call this place home uh, I find it to be uh, incredibly important to be able to acknowledge our relations here and especially in Albuquerque which is like in a way it's like a I guess you could call it, uh, it's like an urban border town of Indian country, really, where we're surrounded by Pueblo nations. We're surrounded by, by sovereign nations here, and yet, of course, uh, there is a huge urban native uh, community here, uh, as well as, you know, New Mexico's just incredible, uh, just incredible history. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, so I guess 
we can, uh, I guess let's get, this, let's get this party started. So I think one thing that fascinates me about this, this conversation of race, indigeneity, and blackness in the Southwest is I think how, uh, really how to consider opportunities to break down those kinds of racial barriers, particularly in this region, which uh, I think hopefully this conversation will lead towards more productive, I think, uh, steps to alleviating that, but you know, again, uh, this is New Mexico after all, and stuff happens in very weird ways here. Uh, but I, of course, you know, that is actually kind of the nature of imperialism uh, in a way, uh, which interestingly enough, I'm not actually gonna reach from, you know, the, the, the famous white anthropologists or from, you know. No, actually, I want to share um, an idea of imperialism that actually comes from a Henisaro-specific space, uh, one which uh, I've been very honored to be able to uh, work with and to be, I think, to be able to continue to develop now with uh, the Pueblo de ABQ uh, for a, a summer institute I'm going to be uh, leading with uh, community youth. Uh, so uh, what this idea of imperialism that I want to sort of post for you all uh, today, uh, it goes a little something like this, and it comes from uh, I believe one of the most important uh, Henisaro intellectuals of the 20th century, and that is El Difunto, Dr. Uh, Gilberto Benito Cordova. Um, and so uh, Dr. Cordova writes, imperialism in part vindicates its temperament with its proclivity to view that which deviates from its own matrix as inferior. Precursory practice presuppose a minimizing of the value belief system, and even the material inventory of the target culture. A secular basis for cultural nucleation is found in the theme of the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no strange God, people, or culture before me. And so Dr. Gordova continues, this is often interpreted to mean that the God or culture of the other people, including uh, those of primitive people and the spirit world of the Native American is demon-infested. Foreign culture, at best, is seen as a malign mutation of non-Western culture. Fundamentalists preached that the third world is pagan, pagan being synonymous with banal. Reproachment is even leveled against people who worship only but one deity. So in this case, monotheistic Islam worships a false deity, Allah, a, a god of war, while Jehovah is the god of love and peace. So imperialism denigrates the values of most things that are foreign, degrading remarks spew forth. Uh, yeah, I am better than you are. And since I am superior to you, it is better that I rule over you. So who the imperialist is, it really is, is unimportant for Dr. Cordova here. And what he's really talking about is, he says, what is consequential is the modus operandi which feeds it. It becomes expedient to propagandize minority cultures subservient to the individual from such a culture is doltish. That he has ominous values, that his ideas are subaltern. Rationalization of this nature surfaces when an exploitative culture contacts a minority culture. This postulate is true even in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave.
So those are some pretty fierce fighting words. I don't. I mean, I, I thought they were pretty fierce fighting words for sub, for you know a guy working uh, in the Smithsonian in, in the early 1990s, uh, and especially in a space where they were very insistent on refusing to acknowledge any subtle presences within the state of New Mexico, whether we're talking about within a historical context or even today. And so um, I kind of wa I wanted to pose that definition as a way. Uh, not only to talk about this cleverness in terms of how he actually used that definition to talk about lowriders in the Española Valley, <laughs> which is really, uh, yeah, so that's a whole other kind of can of worms that my work is, is looking at. But I feel like in, in looking at the, these intersections of race, indigeneity, and blackness, that we have to think about imperialism in a very different sort of way where we have to start disentangling. Uh, so in this case, we're in Native Studies, uh, you know, the, I think the buzzword, you know, for a while has been the idea of settler colonialism. I don't know if you all, grad students, you remember settler colonialism? Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> but uh, the point being that it also has created a very fascinating paradigm uh, for Native intellectuals in particular to sort of understand and really to engage with not only the colonial moment, but in this case, talking about settler colonialism as a structure and not as an event. So juxtaposing those two ideas, so one of settler colonialism where we think about, uh, you know, uh, so logics of elimination where race is being used as a way to sort of distinguish between land, so land, the racialization of native peoples is particularly tied to the dispossession of lands, whereas the racialization of black bodies is the dispossession of labor itself. Perhaps a better way to think about it is actually the, uh, what would you, the consolidation of labor and really the, and, and its exploitation. And so, I think when we think about New Mexico, there, there's just it's a very it's a very trippy place because we have to think about transnational indigenous identities in a way that go beyond these constructs and yet play into sort of the 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 legacies which uh, kind of begot them. So uh, I, I kind of put these two current trends up here to kind of give you an idea of how scholars right now are, are looking at, so, you know, so Jeff uh, Schultz's work, uh, so are we not foreigners here, uh, looks, it's a very fascinating comparative political history of transnational indigenous nations uh, strategically utilizing the border in a very, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very smart book. I highly suggest you check it out. Um, but Schultz also goes into the presence of the Mascogues in, uh, or the Mascogues, excuse me, uh, in Coahuila. Uh, so that being tied to the internalization of white supremacy within Indian country where you had uh, the five civilized tribes essentially adopting practices of chattel slavery. And so in this case, enslaving black bodies. And then those bodies then being uh, removed uh, from Indian, or from, for example, so in the Southeast, then being removed to Indian territory in, in Oklahoma. Uh, but in this case, where in, in I think Alejandro Madrid's work uh, does a really fascinating job of looking at it from an ethnomusicological perspective, is looking at, so the Mascogos are actually, so they, these are black Seminoles. And they actually went into Mexico actually to flee slavery because Mexico uh, was actually seen as the land of the free rather than the United States, uh, and which was, uh, you know, I, I tend to, it, it, that needs some nuance, but, you know, uh, for better, for worse, what, what was more important was that black Seminoles saw the U.S.-Mexico border 
as a strategic place not only to sort of uh, subvert white supremacy, uh, and particularly its valences within, you know, whether we're talking about the South or even within tribal nations uh, connected to the five civilized tribes, but also um, seeing it as a way to be able to create and maintain and perpetuate their own understandings of who they are as mixed race indigenous peoples, but more, more I think most importantly, as Muscogos. So now we're gonna get into some really, some really interesting stuff, uh, because I think when we're looking at the intersections of black studies and native studies, and particularly the ways within which race operates within those spaces, um, Native studies has actually been quite curious about what black intellectuals have been doing. And, uh, and I think, you know, I kind of use these, these two works here to kind of give you an idea. So, uh, you know, Sylvain Delory is famous, uh, you know, Custer died for your sins. You know, he devotes a whole chapter just to talking about the differences between the red power movement and black liberation uh, in, in the civil rights era. And I, I know I'm overgeneralizing here, but I think where he misses the point, but I feel he, it was a, an important part of the American Indian movement, was that he was looking at how native peoples are not like other minorities. His argument was that native peoples are in fact, they are sovereign, they are sovereign citizens of sovereign nations. And as such, they should not be rolled or, or, or sort of lumped into sort of the, the minority identity politics that were happening within the 1960s and the 70s. And so, it, for Vine, it was very purposeful to distinguish blackness from Indianness, and particularly as a way to sort of juxtapose how within, you know, uh, sort of uh, this thrust of uh, black political activism, uh, the thrust was for political equality within the United States. And where Vine makes the argument is that Native peoples don't want equality at all. They don't want to have anything to do with the settler state. And so that is a very, so you, you see that where the, the tensions start starting to pull because uh, basically how do, you, how, do you approach an how do you approach a conversation where almost uh, systemically uh, one cannot really be in dialogue with the other because one is seen as sort of perpetuating uh, sort of the imperialist ideas of settler colonialism, uh, so which in this case we're seen as uh, Native intellectuals seeing uh, within the, the black liberation movement uh, in the 60s, but also, but at the same time, wanting to articulate a very purposeful political rhetoric and a legal rhetoric which, again, distinguishes native peoples and particularly federally recognized tribal nations from other peoples in the United States. So, so on one end, we have this kind of this, uh, I'd say, you know, like a very clear distinction, but then on the right-hand side, uh, you know, we have Glenn Coulthard's work, and so, uh, you know, it's a fairly recent book called Redskin White Masks, and uh, Glenn really tries to utilize the work of uh, Frantz Fanon, so, you know, black, uh, black Skin White Masks, as sort of as a, as a reference point for, to talk about, uh, in his eyes, where he was looking at the colonial politics of recognition through the lens of indigenousness within uh, First Nations communities in Canada. Um, now, you know, there's, there's been a lot of debate about Glenn's book because, you know, uh, part of, I think, my own intellectual development and thinking about, you know, going out to uh, UT Austin and, and really working uh, and being in dialogue with scholars who, you know, what was really interesting was that all of the indigenous scholars within my department were not federally recognized 
uh, citizens. Not one of us. And so it was a very different conversation to approach Glenn's work where he's talking about, uh, again, he's, he's, using a, he's using a Fanonian read of Hegel. So, you know, Hegel's, yeah, Hegel's ridiculous. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, like, I devoted like a whole thing in my dissertation to that guy. But the point being that what was interesting, though, was that, you know, that again, indigenous political theorists are actively looking, and they've been actively looking at black intellectuals to find some kind of political rhetoric within which uh, they could start articulating their own sort of visions of what decolonization and, uh, and indigenous self-determination look like. However... Uh, and I think actually at, at that conference in Vancouver, uh, there was a very fascinating dialogue between, it was a grad student, a black graduate student, and Glenn. And uh, this grad student essentially poses the question, well, how do, you, how do you address the very visible issues of race? How do you, how, like, how do you address the ideas of, you know, where Fanon is, is writing from, you know, he's writing from an African perspective and, you know, and, uh, within an independence movement. And how can you make those equivalences between Fanon and what you know Aboriginal uh, leaders were doing in Canada? And you know, and uh, his argument was, well, Native peoples have been, you know, we've been di in dialogue with everybody, and he's not necessarily wrong. But I think the point being is that there's there is remains that tension about how do how does Native studies address and how does it interact with a discourse of race, which is you know in, in I think what we see with uh, you know Patrick Wolf's work as well as Lorenzo Veracini is that um, these different logics of racialization they were used and they were purposed against uh, towards very different political and economic and social ends. But the point being that you know how in today's sort of current climate where we have you know our current political climate where we have children being locked in cages where we have indigenous you know indig particularly. Uh, mixed descent indigenous peoples uh, being, you know, uh, caged up in, in Tornillo. Uh, or, for example, Garifuna families uh, from Honduras, so mixed, uh, you know, uh, Afro-indigenous families from Honduras uh, being racialized as black and not being acknowledged for their indigeneity. So these, these things are very present today. Um, and yet, what I'm hoping to do for you all, I think, this afternoon is to at least set the table and kind of building and departing, I think, from what Natasha had uh, uh, so, I think, brilliantly suggested to me about uh, how, how, how do you approach something like this within the context of New Mexico? Because New Mexico is a trip. It's, it's a trip. <laughs> and so, you know, how do, we, how do we set that table? And so my idea, and again, I'm not saying it's necessarily the best one, but I mean, is actually to go back and to start looking at what our and what particularly what Pueblo what, what Pueblo historians have been talking about and uh, so I bring up uh, Dr. Joe Sando uh, his work uh, particularly because he was one of the first Pueblo historians really to dig his fingers into the complexities of black Pueblo histories and particular uh, in, in New Mexico and so he actually has a book that was uh, and I'll, I'll show that later but uh, like I said I think Dr. Sando was well ahead of his time being one of those guys, of course, and particularly being an indigenous scholar, uh, there's a lot of risks in being able to pursue those kinds of projects, and particularly in the ways in which uh, it impacts ideas of 
you know, anti-blackness in Indian country and how it operates in New Mexico. I felt like the model he was giving was something that was important because what he was wanting to look at, and, and in his book, he devotes one of the first really, I mean, in, in incredible sort of uh, insight into uh, particularly how mixed-race Pueblo men were being utilized and they were sort of negotiating between uh, sort of colonial stakeholders. So whether they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, working with Spanish colonial officials to go on raids against, you know, Diné peoples, or on the other side where they were actually, you know, feeding information uh, to Pueblo elders. And so, so you had black Pueblo peoples kind of in a, in a very different space than their non-black relatives. And I think Dr. Sando really uh, led the way in sort of uh, wanting to see this as not as antithetical, but actually as very much interwoven. To give you an idea where I'm wanting to, to go with this, uh, actually I'm, I'm wanting to really pay homage to uh, an incredible cohort of, of black women scholars here in New Mexico uh, who were, uh, so Barbara Richardson, uh, Eula Cox, as well as, um, equal, uh, there's a, I'll, I'll remember the other one too, but uh, the point being, this report here was commissioned by the New Mexico Commission on the Status of Women, and it was published in 1985, and it is by far one of the greatest texts I've ever seen in terms of looking at what, what a black perspective of a black native relational history can look like. Uh, and yet, what was so awesome was these women at the forefront of the book, I mean, making it very clear that it was, you know, that there were some pretty messed up racial uh, politics going on uh, to the point where essentially why would Estebanico, so, uh, you know, a black Moor uh, or Moorish slave, so I guess Moorish in the parlance of different times, but a black slave, uh, being actually the one, so in this case in New Mexico, indigenous colonial power relations were not negotiated through Spanish and, and indigenous peoples. It was actually done through a black intermediary and Pueblo peoples. And so what's fascinating is, is Dr. Joe, he is, so Dr. Sando, he has in his book, uh, he, he, he shares this really awesome, I think, and it, it's, it's so timely because his argument is, well, you know, for his, for his ancestors, the first white man they came across was actually a black man. And that should show, I think, a, a very different set of power relations that are, that, that are structuring how black and indigenous bodies relate to one another in this place. Uh, and so, like I said, I think um, this report, it's an incredible resource. And so for those that are curious about exploring this more, I highly suggest you check it out because it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, the second one I wanted to uh, showcase here uh, was a publication by Eula Cox as well as Barbara Richardson that was published actually in 1976. So I'm pretty sure, I, I have to double check on this, this publication came out around the same time as the bicentennial celebrations. Uh, so in New Mexico, you had a bunch of different communities that were trying to you know, create, uh, whether they were exhibits or whether they were you know, di different kinds of programming uh, regarding New Mexico history. And so, uh, in a way, this was uh, a very important contribution uh, done by, again, and led by uh, black women scholars uh, here in New Mexico. And, uh, you know, I, I, I won't read uh, the, I guess, the text on the right, but um, I hope you all will, because it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fierce. I think the fact that these women would, I think, willingly engage in a place where, again, where the tricultural myth sort of erases their capacities to exist, 
um, and doing it with such, I think with such critical compassion is really, is really beautiful and something that, again, I, I hope fleshing this out for you is going is to uh, work itself out. But um, all right, so now we get to get to the good stuff. Let's, let's shift gears here. The way I was really wanting to think about this conversation was actually comes from a, a project, or it's kind of like a side thing that I was doing with my uh, with my dissertation, where you know, and when I was looking at uh, the presences of Hinisaro uh, children within uh, federal Indian boarding schools in New Mexico, and as I, I would come to find out later, uh, actually across the nation, um, I would come across a uh, not an anomaly, but I would come across these these different aspects of the way that bureau uh, uh, so BIA administrators were trying to classify the Indianness of native children or in this case uh, where you had if you had mixed descent children or uh, so if they were you know uh, or even if they lived on the borders of pueblos uh, it created a very unique I think sort of racial hierarchy in terms of how Indianness was sort of uh, juxtaposed with these ideas of Mexicanness. So whereas, so Mexicanness could not ever go into Indianness, and they were seen as two fundamentally separate ideas. Uh, and um, so, get, getting into this stuff, um, <laughs> I found a, uh, a a child. I mean, really, in in the records, uh, and he, he kind of came up as as you know, uh, he was. He arrived at the Indian schools at different times, but it was kind of at the same time as the kids from IBQ. And and what would come out to be is that his his uh, his father was actually was a Buffalo soldier, and he was actually uh, uh, a part of the uh, the regiment uh, the regimental band. And uh, so his father was a Buffalo soldier, and his mother was. And this is where New Mexico sort of really gets you here. Is uh, you know, there's conflicting ideas because you essentially to understand wh who she is, you have to go into baptismal records, which are really kind of like the only records that you could find of this institution of native enslavement that existed in New Mexico all the way up until the early 1900s. So well, it would come to find out that uh, this young boy, uh, his mother was actually a Ute slave. Uh, her name was Rosalia uh, Vigil, but his name was Patrick Straw. And so I wanted to kind of talk about the stories of Patrick Straw and in fact uh, this is actually a, this is a picture of the 9th Cavalry uh, band in Santa Fe in 1880 and he's I, I'm pretty sure he's one of these guys right here but I like I can't I can't quite make it out and unfortunately uh, you know the, the archival records really difficult to sort of uh, distinguish uh, between people and they, yeah they, they didn't do it like left to right or anything they just kind of put names out there and just kind of like you know figure it out but I want to talk about the stories of Patrick Straw. So I have to distinguish them. So Patrick Straw Sr. and Patrick Straw Jr. I don't know if they considered themselves to be senior and junior, but I, that's kind of the way I have to, to distinguish them because, uh, you know, so senior, again, it's very difficult to, 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 to determine whether, you know, where and, and when he was born. But uh, the only way we could find his uh, birth records was actually when he enlisted in, in the United States Army. Uh, and... When he enlisted, uh, it showed his, uh, his birth date as 1841 in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, once, uh, you know, once the Civil War ends, 1860, what, 1865? 
the United States Army would start recruiting uh, black cavalry uh, soldiers, particularly from New Orleans, and uh, Patrick Straw would be one of those cavalry soldiers. Uh, but uh, you know, his his story is really interesting because as a uh, a part of the band, like his uh, his duties weren't necessarily like other cavalry soldiers, and yet he was c consistently you know scouting, and and so that's kind of where his story gets really fascinating with in terms of how. For example, I'd like for you all to see where these military installations are situated. So we have Fort Stanton right next to the Mescalero Apache Reservation. We have Campo Ojo Caliente next to the Ojo Caliente Reservation. So essentially, the United States military decided uh, to strategically station black cavalry soldiers specifically on the borders of Indian nations. And then at the same time, we also have up there at Fort Union, uh, you know, and so that, that uh, military installation has its own history because it also has, you, know, you have the, the whole Colfax County War, and so it, so it gets into like these, these racial kind of politics where up in northern New Mexico, and well, really at the border of southern Colorado and northern New Mexico, you know, there was active Klan movement, and there was active Klan, uh, you know, so the Ku Klux Klan was very active in southern Colorado. And so you'd have black cavalry soldiers essentially either escorting uh, Native peoples off of different reservations towards other reservations, or uh, protecting uh, supply lines. And so basically what you start having in New Mexico is where presence of, of, of black communities here is almost antithetical to the ways within which native nations were constructed and the way that they end up getting uh, you know, situated, uh, particularly within reservation communities. And so the stories of Patrick Straw really start to blur those lines in terms of how empire kind of brought black bodies into, into the Southwest and yet at the same time where you have indigenous, indigenous nations really starting to push back to the point where, uh, you know, in, in New Mexico, black cavalry soldiers were awarded 18 Congressional Medals of Honor. And the vast majority of those were earned fighting Native peoples. So tensions, <laughs> the, the, the tensions are really, are really difficult to, to sort of, um, to get away from. Not really, and, and really they're important for us to acknowledge because it's it's sort of this juxta again this juxtaposition of where you know when you have this almost twenty percent of the entire enlistment of all black soldiers end up in some way serving in New Mexico uh, and particularly within these these specific time periods um, and, but kind of going from the eighteen sixties all the way up until the eighteen uh, nineties so that's to kind of give you a layout really of where. Patrick Straw really, you know, he was stationed at Fort Union, then he gets, he gets moved down to Fort Stanton, uh, then Fort Craig, uh, and so even though he's a part of the cavalry, uh, you know, the band, uh, they still had him on patrols, and so he was still having to escort. So for example, there's a, there's a very uh, brilliant story that actually that uh, uh, Dr. Billington does in, in, this, in his book, New Mexico's Buffalo Soldiers, uh, where he talks about how the United States Army would only send black cavalry units to go get guys like Victorio and others who were quote unquote jumping the reservations because essentially they saw black bodies as being perishable and they saw them as being able to be disposable in, into these kinds of spaces. And so 
that, that's a difficult history to be able to, to engage with, but at the same time, to find out that one of these soldiers actually not only, he, he not only marries, uh, he marries one woman in Fort, in Fort Union, <laughs> but then uh, he has a child, I don't know if it's out of marriage or what, but then that's where Patrick Straw comes out. <laughs> uh, but it, so it's, it's, a, it's a narrative that is something that I'm hoping to continue to be able to develop uh, in tandem, and I think in collaboration with the Pueblo de Abiquiu's uh, Library and Pueblo Cultural Center, be particularly because of where, not only of, of, of Patrick's uh, Jr.'s uh, connection to the Rio Chama, because what I argue is that his mother was, actually, was, a, was a youth slave, and uh, I was able to, to find these records, particularly through baptismal records in El Rito. So, so kind of the, the big sort of trade hubs for native slaves were El Rito, Taos, and Abiquiu. And so for her to come out of El Rito, um, you know, it, it, it actually makes a lot of sense given the time period. Uh, but you know, moving kind of bringing this this conversation into the community, uh, this is something that elders in particular uh, have wanted uh, me to continue uh, developing with. Uh, I think it, with them, and I think that's the, that's the important aspect of it is that it's a collaborative effort where it's situating that history within the contexts of the pueblo's history, and particularly how you know how those kinds of stories of Rosalia Vigil are so similar to what happened to many Penisaro families in the Rio, in the Rio Chama and also in, in the Taos Valley. Taos is a bit different, but it, at least in the Rio Chama, though, um, you know, it, it was also the site of, uh, I mean, of, well, of, of Indian agencies, particularly uh, geared towards the Capote Ute as well as the Hikari Apache, uh, which, again, black cavalry units were sent to specifically to move them between uh, Abiquiu or Tierra, Tierra Maria, and then to uh, Cimarron, but then they end up moving down to Mescalero. But anyway, the point being, black bodies were seen as disposable in this place, and but the way that their disposability was was seen through was through indigenous violence. It, and but so this is where I'm wanting to think about and really wanting to to challenge the narrative here is that we kind of have to we we have to rupture those binaries and to start thinking about it the way that Ned Blackhawk, uh, you know, a uh, Western Shoshone scholar, uh, talks about, he talks about it as um, the displacement of colonial violence. And particularly the ways in his work, he's talking about actually in ABQ, um, but also in, throughout uh, Northern New Mexico, uh, where native peoples were also participating in the enslavement of other native peoples. And so he, he has to, so he finds this, this very important I think framework for us. I think to to find, yeah, it might not be the answer, but it, I think it's a it's a great place to start. It's a very, and I think it's an important way to think about uh, ways to sort of rupture those racial binaries. Which again, U.S. settler colonialism kind of strategically positioned black bodies in contradistinction to native bodies. Uh, but now, you know, and, and again, you know, Patrick Straw's, you know, his both of their stories are not necessarily. Uh, unique in New Mexico, but I think they're important. And you know, the hope is is that uh, being able to work with youth in the Pueblo de Abiquiu and to be able to have them take ownership of what that history looks like to them, um, you know. And for me, as a Hinisaro man, and, and you know, as an aspiring you know a Comanche citizen, is part you know it's the way of giving back that knowledge to those that gave me it to begin with. And so, if this is a way for me to be able to start creating. Maybe you know, maybe not different, but 
hopefully productive spaces for elders and youth to be able to talk about stuff like race in a space where, and, you know, and within a context where race isn't supposed to exist, and particularly within relation to black bodies. Um, you know, like that, that's a hard conversation to have, and, but um, I'm very fortunate to be able to have the kind of support that I have in, in the Pueblo de ABQ as well as in my community. But um, you know, I think I'll, I'll just kind of end it there and uh, kind of see if there's any uh, questions or concerns. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity, and I'm just I'm honored and deeply humbled to be here. Thank you. Welcome back to Generation Justice. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez and Dr. Charles Becknell and UNM Africana Studies for allowing us to share this wonderful lecture. And thank you to the UNM Office of the Provost, Vision for Equity and Inclusion, Men of Color Initiative, and the Albuquerque Chapter of the Lynx. Now, before our calendar, we have a little bit of music. First up is Remember Me, by Fawn Wood featuring Randy Wood and R. Carlos Nakai and Jen Yami by Oshun. Hi, yo, hi. Enjoy this hour of Generation Justice. We would like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, the Colne Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. Thank you again to UNM Africana Studies and Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Before we leave you tonight, we have some additional music. First up is Soft Stud by Black Belt Eagle Scout. 
R.E.D. by Tribe Called Red, featuring Yasin Bey, Narsi, Black Bear, and the poetry of John Trudell, and Punching in a Dream by Naked and Famous. Good night. Halusa Nation. Our DNA is of earth and sky. Bismillah. <laughs> 